Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Kurt, great to see you as always, and uh, we've got a great podcast for our listeners today. Nice to see you as well, Rich. Today, we're really excited to be joined by a good friend and one of the most prominent thinkers and writers on energy policy and geopolitics in the world. Dr. Daniel Jurgen. Dr. Jurgen is also the author of a new book, which we're going to discuss today. It was just released on September 15th called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Class of Nations, which we highly recommend our listeners to pick up. I just finished it last night. It's tremendous. It gave me a number of insights about what's going on in Asia that, frankly, I hadn't thought very much about. Rich? Yeah, Kurt, Dan has been at the forefront of the discussion on global energy policy and its impact not only on geopolitics, but also on U.S. domestic and and foreign policy. He's currently the vice chairman at IHS, one of the world's largest research and information companies. He also works closely with the U.S. Department of Energy on the U.S. Secretary of Energy Advisory Board. We're really thrilled to have him here today. And Dan, welcome to Tea Leaves. Well, thank you both. I'm very glad to be able to join you. So, Dan, you you have a number of just terrific books, one of which won the Pulitzer Prize that was really groundbreaking and helping us understand about energy. What you've done this time is help us understand sort of a new phase in energy politics and competition. You talk about the interconnection between this rising set of tensions between the United States and China. You talk a little bit about the move towards renewable energies and the like. But what I found most interesting was that most people, when they talk about sort of the United States and China, are focused largely on these new innovative technologies, AI, quantum computing, robotics, uh, you know, biotech. But what you talk about is the technology associated with energy policy and also that the competition on these traditional issues continue. And, you know, there was the very comp- uh, important component of the phase one deal it was supposed to be energy sales from the United States to China. None of that has really come to pass. Dan, please just introduce the concept of the book, why you decided to write it, and then we'll we'll get into it. Dan? Thank you, Kurt. Basically, the idea came to me about four years ago, watching how, because of what was happening in the U.S. and other developments with energy, that the logistical map of world energy was changing. And then it really became a metaphor for describing the new map of uh, energy and geopolitics together. They're so intertwined and so many disruption coming in so many different ways that I hope that the new map indeed provides a map for understanding this new more complex, and I think you guys would agree, more dangerous world into which we're moving. So, Dan, I'd be curious, as you look at uh, the U.S. and its approach to energy more generally, I think if you, if you think a little bit about work that you've done in the past, a key ingredient of our approach to energy has been a sense of vulnerability, that we are somehow linked to foreign supply, and that cutoffs could have dramatic implications for our domestic security and indeed our international security. More recently, uh, that's still the case for our allies and friends in most of the world, but the recent period has brought forth a kind of energy independence, so to speak, at least for the United States uniquely, not necessarily for our 
framework of allies and friends. How do you think that development has shaped how we see and engage in the world? I think on one hand, many people take it for granted or don't know about it, don't realize it, but it has been like a 180 degree change, Kurt, from where we were before, where it was a sense of vulnerability. We were importing 60% of our oil. It really limited flexibility. And this amazing shale revolution we've had in the United States has transformed it. We used to think about OPEC versus non-OPEC, but now it's really the big three, the United States, Russia, and China. And the United States is the largest producer of oil and gas in the world. And that changes things economically, and it changes things politically. And when you're in other countries, you find they're much more aware of it and see this as actually a new source of strength for the United States. So, Dan, can I, can I spend a couple minutes just talking about the U.S. with you? Because we're also in the political season and, and these, these arguments get politicized very quickly. But maybe just set some baselines for us on when you talk about the shale gas revolution, how big of a revolution has this been? And what's the projection of how long this could last into the future? How long are we going to remain a net energy provider now, right. which we didn't think we'd ever right. have and we were growing up. Yeah, we're not quite a uh, energy net. We were headed that way. And then came this thing called COVID, which has set it back somewhat. But basically, if you look at our overall position, we're, you know, essentially energy independent. We're just, we don't have that vulnerability before. This is, it's, it's amazing. You know, if we look back 12 years, the only question was how much more oil would we import? And we went from 60% to where we are today, 13 million barrels a day before COVID and the largest gas producer. And how long will it last? Well, I think that there's a recognition. At first, people said, oh, this is a blip. It's going away. But I think the recognition now is that this is, um, you know, we have this capacity. It's not going to grow in the kind of phenomenal way it's grown over the last 10 years. It's going to dip because of what's happened to the economy and COVID. Then we'll come back and it's going to be a very substantial source of energy for the world. And it will clearly be something that will be very important in our relations with other countries, including China. But, but there is an, a tension here. There's an environmental tension. There is a pushback on uh, shale gas development, fracking, which is, I guess, a part. Well, yeah, you know, let me jump in on that because, you know, people yeah. say that. So I say, why are you against fracking? And, you know, what is the problem with it? What are the environmental problems you can point to? I was on, I worked with the Obama administration on this. We had a commission that reviewed it, said if it's regulated properly, it's an industrial activity. It's a big contribution. And so there's, but there's a lot of emotion around it. And people want to say ban fracking without thinking what that means. You know what a ban fracking po uh, policy would be? It's an import more oil policy. If mm -hmm. the people who would be happiest if we ban fracking in the United States would be oil exporting countries in the Middle East, Russia, and other places, because we would open up the market to them. So I think it's, I, I, you know, I hear these arguments and I just sort of say, okay, can you kind of tell us the second or third sentence, not emotion, but kind of in a factual way, but it is a very emotional subject. But let's maybe take the positive side and talk about the renewable story. So maybe decreasing some of the interest in, in traditional sources of energy and here we are now on this kind of renewable. Well, I think uh, I think you've got to do you've got to do the numbers. We get eighty percent of our energy from fossil fuels now. We get less than four percent from wind and solar. 
That's going to change. Wind and solar have also gone through a revolution. Their costs have come way down. They're going to grow for electric power. There are 280 million cars in the United States. Average car stayed on the road in the United States 12 years. People are not going to throw away their cars tomorrow. Clearly, if Biden's president, he has a big climate plan to push electric cars faster, but energy transitions, and I talk about this in the new map, energy transitions take time when you're talking about the vast infrastructure that's here. And in the meantime, if I can just say, we have really other urgent questions that energy plays a role in too, such as relations with China. I, I like that part of the book, uh, Dan, that talked about like it's one thing that to articulate a vision of a future that is reliant more on renewables and the like, but you do make clear as you as you you know explore other periods of transition how difficult it is and how challenging it will be. I'm curious if you can give us a sense a little bit. You know, you talk about fossil fuels, but of course there's a there are differences among fossil fuels. Rich and I have both worked a lot in Asia in which even recently, uh, coal is king. A number of countries have been determined to uh, continue to exploit and extract uh, coal and to take advantage of it, uh, relatively low cost and the like, and they don't see any way to lift their you know vast populations out of poverty without it. Tell us a little bit about how do you think the politics of coal are playing out? Well, I think, and this goes back to Rich's point, of course, in the United States, coal is declining quickly. I mean, it used to be 50% of our electricity. I don't know, it's down around probably 20% right now. Uh, natural gas has actually grown a lot. Uh, but in other countries, if you take India, country Rich knows well, Prime Minister Modi is pushing renewables and they will push it. They worry about importing solar panels from China, which is something we'll get into because it gets to your technology question. But I think the number, and Rich, you probably know the number, isn't it like a million people work in the coal industry in India? And right. so they can't just abolish it. So it is. I think there is a tension. One drive is to replace coal with LNG because you can get scale liquefied natural gas. And that's where it comes in. Like, a, you know, when I've talked to, different Asian countries, they're actually glad the U.S. is an LNG exporter because it gives them options and choices and a way to move away. But I think, you know, kind of dealing with the reality that those countries, many of them still have their emphasis on economic growth and cost. And until they have an alternative, they need big baseload. They don't need just intermittent power. So I think really the, and Rich, this goes back to your question as well as Kurtz, is really, I think we're the next couple of decades, we're going to have a mixed energy system. Can, let me just ask one more question. We've, we've talked about a variety of different energy sources, but in Asia, one of the challenges has been the the Dan the complexity around and and ambiguous views around nuclear power. Of course, we've seen dramatic expansion in China. Japan has had a absolutely tragic set of circumstances around Fukushima. A lot of questions about, you know, where they're going to go with nuclear power. Other countries kind of on on the brink. On the one hand, there are, you know, directional indicators because of climate change and cost that would drive, you know, countries to think more carefully about nuclear power and also the role that the United States has uh, played in terms of promoting our technology in this arena. On the other hand, there is the catastrophic 
circumstances around Fukushima and the long-standing challenges that has pre- presented to Japan, and you know, there's still parts of the country that are uh, completely no-go areas. And I worked on that uh, when I was in the Obama sure. administration. It's probably the most frightening thing I've ever worked on. Just a couple of things go a little differently. Winds go in slightly different direction, and we're talking about you know mass evacuations, whole cities in Japan, perhaps you know worst case scenarios. So, Dan, how does that play out in your view? How do you think? Well, uh, new- well, I remember you know you talk about Fukushima. I remember in 2010, the year before, I was in Singapore at a small conference, and one of the senior Japanese said, you know, we're very worried about safety the Chinese nuclear program. And then, of course, the disaster happened. You know, if the seawall had been higher in Fukushima, it might never have happened. So a huge setback in, in Japan, which is struggling to bring back some of its nuclear. Nuclear has the advantage of being low cost, low, low zero carbon, large scale. California partly has had these brownouts because they shut their nuclear, which would have given them baseload, as it's called, and depending instead on sun and wind, which are intermittent. But I was struck in the U.S., there are now 62 advanced nuclear research projects going on, people trying to find their way forward. But meanwhile, to what you say, Kurt, when I was you know, writing the new map, I said, okay, Germany's shutting down its nuclear power. How much is going down? And then I realized that when I looked at the numbers, China has added more than Germany has shut down just yeah. years since the shutdown. <laughs> so... You know, I think China, uh, of course, South Korea supplied the nuclear power plants that are being built in Abu Dhabi. But basically, it looks like the exporters of nuclear technology will be, you know, China and Russia, and developing countries will go for it. I think cost is an issue, you know, scale up. Chinese do it more cheaply. So, but, you know, nuclear is still 20% of our electricity in the United States, which a lot of people don't know. Dan, can I ask you about China and the kind of Indo-Pacific region, Belt and Road, you know, the concerns that India has about Chinese aggressiveness, and frankly, the concerns that, that we have. How much of Chinese activity, you know, from Africa to across the South China Sea is about a, a quest to secure and supply the Chinese people with adequate sources of energy? Well, I think uh, it's, you know, the, the, the section of the book called the China's map is really about two maps. It's, I mean, this is not a geography lesson, so it's a metaphor, but it's the South China Sea and it's Belt and Road, exactly the two things you've talked about. And in both cases, I mean, there are a number of different things that are there for China. Belt and Road is markets, uh, is building up its pl- political influence. It's kind of an, Kurt, you would have a view of this, reordering the world economy uh, in their direction and uh, dealing with their surplus capital. But energy is an important component in it and securing energy supplies because for China, since the Korean War, dependence on imported energy has been a problem. Uh, they see that as a strategic threat. And so they you know, want diversification all around the world. South China Sea, and I'd be interested what both you think, it seems, you know, there again, there's more than one reason for the Chinese drive. I tell the story going back to the 1930s when the 
when these maps of uh, Chinese humiliation, national humiliation were drawn and how the map that was drawn in 1936 is still the basis of the nine dash line today and how that evolved is really interesting and important to understand. On the energy, I mean, so there's a strategic dimension about the South China Sea. People talk about the energy dimension. The view I take in the new map based upon the geologists in our company and geologists in other companies, uh, in, in major companies, is South China Sea is not very prospective when you compare it to other parts of the world in terms as a source of energy. It's about 1% of world oil now in that region, and it would be expensive to develop, and more likely it would be expensive gas. It seems to me, and I'd like you guys to respond, that this really significance is the transit question, the Malacca dilemma is that China imports 75% of its oil. And one of its strategic obsessions is that the US Navy could interdict oil supplies if there's a standoff over Taiwan. And so that is one of the major drivers to secure that waterway for China. Of course, that's a problem not only for the US freedom of seas and the literal countries around it, but for Japan and Korea, that's a big problem too, although you hear less about it. That's my take on the South China Sea in a nutshell, the view I have in the book. I don't know, Kurt, what, you, you spent a lot of time on it. What do you I think? I spent, alas, a lot of time on that, Dan. It's, you know, it's interesting. Many strategists believe that there is hidden natural gas or oil reserves under parts of the South China Sea. There are clear some reserves in, on Vietnam shelf. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and some of those have already so, been extracted. And so they're significant for the local countries and they're exactly. significant for the companies, but yeah, I, the global but balance. There's nothing that's been discovered yet that would lead anyone to believe this is going to be a, a major new find. So I'm completely in agreement with you. But that hasn't stopped energy desperate nations from maneuvering and trying to stake their claims more generally. I think the reasons, Dan, for China... Uh, taking the position it's taken on, and I, you're exactly right. The the story of the the cartographer in the 1930s that you know ultimately family you know linked to Taiwan and fascinating how this became part of the canon of Chinese interpretations of its own sovereignty. It's just fascinating. And you'll if you want a Chinese diplomat to get unnerved and lose their composure start asking them questions to explore and expand upon the history of this and why you've decided on the nine dash line and what's the, how does that comport with the law of the sea and, and such, but better to have a nice tea or a nice meal. Probably. Well, Kurt, I, I, I think that one of the stories I tell is about that 19, uh, 2011 meeting with secretary Clinton, where yeah. I'm pretty sure you were in the room because you write yeah, about it in your book. And that seemed to be to me a very dramatic I mean, you yeah, know we that story it well. It's actually 2010. It was the, it was the, we were in Vietnam and we tried to push the Chinese to try to understand that the region was sensitive to what it viewed as encroachment on the part of the Chinese that were basically trying to go after areas that had been either not resolved or were in dispute for decades uh, or, or even longer. I, I would say that the question about whether what motivates China here is somehow the idea that the United States would go after energy supplies that are coming to them. You need to, if you look closely at the South China Sea, and you're exactly right, its most important quality is it's a highway. 
that exists, you know, about 35 to 40% of global commerce goes through that every year. But if you really break it down, Dan, what you start to realize is that most of that is going to other countries. It's going to, to the United States, it's going to Japan, to South Korea, or the other direction uh, to India and South Asia. So it is, it's not so much it's a destination for China, but China actually uses it as a waterway itself. Uh, and so in some respects, it has as big an interest as the United States at keeping the, the lines of communication open. And so I think in some respects, this is just how big powers act. They start to say, this is, we make the decisions here. I don't think they have any desire to, to, to stop the flow of transport or energy or, or goods through the South China Sea, but they want it to be known that the decision ultimately lies uh, with, with China. And the United States does not take that view. We we believe that you know we are upholders of the idea of freedom of the seas, freedom of navigation, and that that ultimately these are they can be operated in as long as you uh, respect general maritime and uh, generally agreed upon international legal provisions. Those contests are of interpretation and the like are very difficult. And the Chinese now have had a number of rulings in the court, in uh, the law of the scene elsewhere that have ruled against them, both on the creation of artificial islands and how to interpret, you know, the territorial limits that run through these areas, these disputed waters. And so they've basically said, you know, we're just going to proceed anyway. So I, I, you know, you're exactly right. To, to point out that, you know, energy does come to play in interesting ways in the South China Sea. But ultimately, I think this is, this is what China believes great powers do, that they right. take out territory and they say this is ours. And that, the, and that they look at the United States and the role that we've played in the Caribbean yeah. and Same in Latin America in the past. And they say things like, well, well, you did that. And we would say, and we will say, no, that was then. This is now kind of thing, right? Well, also, I had that photograph in the book. I mean, one of the things I'm really pleased with the book is the the photographs, which also tell the story. And there's a photograph of Xi Jinping shortly after he becomes uh, party secretary, leading his Politburo immediately over to the museum to stand in front of the exhibit on the century of humiliation. And I think that very much plays into, you know, figures into what you say, the mental attitude of a, of a great power that's the second largest economy in the world. Hey, Dan, I, I want to ask you about oil and gas in relation to Russia and the Middle East. And look, um, as you said, Russia is one of the big three. The Middle East, we got used to being dependent upon. And I guess the concern as you, as you write years ago was, we're going to run out at some point, you know, I think you call it peak oil. And now there's a, there's a new issue, which is, uh, will there be sufficient demand? And so is it your estimation that Putin and the leaders in Saudi Arabia and, and other countries in the Middle East realize that they are somewhat time limited in their power because the, the the demand is decreasing, either because of electric cars or renewables. I mean, well, that's really complicated. But take us through well, that. Well, I do bit. think uh, I have an anecdote, a story in in the new map 
I don't say it's me, but it's where Putin starts shouting at me because I said the two words, you know, or said the word shale. And he doesn't like shale because I think he doesn't like it because he doesn't want to give up market share to the U.S. And he sees, you know, U.S. as shale as an adjunct to U.S. foreign policy now. So I think he's thinking in those terms. I think there's a difference, my observation, a difference between the Gulf countries and uh, and Russia. I mean, Russia's talked about diversification for a long time. They reforming their economy. It really hasn't happened. It is a more diversified economy. It's the largest exporter of wheat in the world. But as you're saying, its revenues, its GDP depend upon it a lot. I don't, but I, what you see is the urgency in the Gulf countries, you know, particularly Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, talk about how they've shifted their economy because they do worry, you know, Saudi Arabia's public knowledge is an investor in uh, Uber and Lyft. <laughs> you know, they, uh, uh, so they, they maybe, I don't know if they're an investor in Tesla or not, but they, you know, that the world is going to change. I mean, peak demand, some say it's going to come in the 2020s, some say in the 2030s. Uh, and it, it, will, it will not just be a plummet, but it will be an easing off. And so that's, you know, so trying to diversify their economies the other reason is if you have 70% of your population is under the age of 30 or 35, you need jobs. And this is not a capital intent, you know, a labor intensive industry. So that's the other reason. So I think that your point is, you know, you always hate to say this time is different, but they've been talking about diversification for 30 years. I do think this time is different for the reasons that, that you say. Interesting. Can I, um, can I bring you, back to the renewable subject and, and maybe back to the politics a little bit. You talk about a post-Paris world and a pre-Paris world. And I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you write about it, I think, rather complimentary, as if this was a pretty big achievement to bring the, the world together. But at the same time, I, again, not putting words in your mouth, you seem to express a little bit of skepticism about the green revolution, which may be a thing happening here in the U.S. as opposed to a part of, of Paris. Can you just give us your thoughts on kind of where we're headed, either globally, on moving to a kind of less carbonized right. uh, world, and, and whether this is uh, achievable? Well, I think, well, first, I think it's achievable. I think that it really did strike me, you know, as you're sort of kind of finishing a book like this, you kind of stand back and say, well, what did you learn from it? And it was that there are these two energy years before Paris and after Paris. Quite remarkable to have 195 nations sign on to this uh, Paris Agreement, which aims to keep things at two degrees or less uh, compared to pre-industrial times. I mean, I don't think we can think of very many things that have been like that, that have had that that scale of impact. And what strikes me in the five years since Paris is the degree to which it's become a benchmark, not only for governments, but for investors, for companies. How does your strategy comport with the Paris goal? So I think it's a formidable, I won't say unprecedented, but, you know, very unusual achievement to have made that happen. You know, every country from, you know, the Netherlands to Syria has signed on to it. I mean, Syria. But um, what I also just, the view is that it's hard to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, it goes back to what we talked about. It's, you know, it's not, it doesn't happen overnight. And 
you know, and I also think, and this is a question really that coming out of COVID, are, are we going to have a strong economy, a weak economy? What kind of well, governments have the money that they want yeah. to invest in it? But there's no question, you know, this revolution in renewable costs, renewables is going to be, uh, wind and solar are going to be a much bigger part of um, electricity supply. I think we, I did this study with Ernie Moniz on, uh, for the Bill Gates Foundation on the technologies we don't have. And that's one of the things that strikes me. We need, I mean, we really need a commitment to, to research, to science, to really achieve these goals. I mean, obviously, one area we need a breakthrough on batteries so that you can store wind and solar so they're not intermittent. And, you know, so it just kind of, I mean, it's not great for a slogan when you want to do things, but just to say, you know, it's a big, complicated problem to move in 30 years from one kind of economy to another, let alone to try and do it in 10 years. Yeah, Dan, I, what I really admire about the work that you've done always is I, I think the truth is that you take on issues and sometimes you help us with, with coming to terms with uncomfortable truths about those issues. And I think you've done that on the energy transition and how difficult it would be and sort of recognizing the, the continuing importance of legacy sources of energy more generally. I do want to ask, though, more generally about, uh, you know, you track a little bit about public policy, how, 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 how you know, developments impact uh, thinking about energy and climate change. I've been struck, you know, I, I wrote a book about climate change, you know, several years ago. The, the, the belief was that at some point in the 2040s or 50s that we would be dealing with you know issues like out of control fires in the west you know deep droughts issues associated with 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 flooding in places low lying areas like florida and around new orleans and the like it does seem as if and some you know client specialists this is such a hard area and so much of it is uncertain and and you know deniers and others use that uncertainty against them but it does feel as if the the cascading effects from climate are accelerating and, and hitting us earlier. What impact do you think the, you know, the fires in the West and stuff are likely to have on how Americans think about these things? Well, I, I know that's that, a little bit beyond your, your, yeah. your, your writ, but I'm curious, you must be focused on this as well. Well, I, th I think the fires in the West have moved climate more to the fore. I mean, it's, you know, it's become a very specific issue in the presidential campaign with uh, Biden and Trump going at each other over it. So I think it's really, you know, in a way you, you say it's pushed the issue more to the front. Uh, and the question, you know, not only and the question of mitigation of how to manage as the climate changes. Interesting. Dan, let, let me just ask one last thing as, as we go forward. So, Part of, you know, the whole climate energy stuff, there, there's been a huge amount of work that has been devoted largely to try to how to prevent carbon going into the atmosphere, right? And I think we understand that. I remember having a conversation with you once where you talked about work that, you know, it's still speculative and difficult, but how to take carbon 
out of the atmosphere. I mean, to date, the oceans play that role generally, even though that leads to acidity and other challenges. Is there any technological innovations there that you think have any prospect? Well, when Ernie Moniz and I did that study, we listed what we thought were the areas that really needed advancement. And I would say carbon capture is clearly one of the things that we need advancement on, and people may be skeptical about it. But look at wind and solar going back to time. The modern wind and solar industry are 50 years old. It's only in the last 10 years that they've matured and really become competitive. Things take time. So that's why, you know, I'm such big emphasis on why we need to put money, whether Democrats are in power or Republicans. The U.S. has a leadership role in developing the technologies that we need to address climate. And if, if their urgency, that's where the urgency really is, where we have so much better a system for bringing science, technology, and bringing things to market than any other country in the world, and we have the resources. And I would say carbon capture, absolutely, in order to talk, achieve what you and Rich are talking about, it has to be part of the mix. You can't just sort of say, oh, it's fanciful, it hasn't worked. You know, it may be what the Salk Institute is doing on plants, yeah. um, but, you know, that's got to be part of the part of the solution when you just look at the numbers. So, I mean, there's a real technology, let me say, so there's a real technology agenda here. And the the final answers, it seems to me, the real answers are going to be technology as they've always been ever since the first energy transition. And we're right in the middle of the next, the the latest energy transition. Yeah. And what, you know, Dan's referring to some of the work at Salt, we were out in uh, San Diego and got a chance to take a look at that not long ago. And these are uh, genetically engineered plants that have very deep roots that are almost completely carbon-based that would deposit, take, you know, uh, carbon out of the atmosphere and then deposit into the soil in a relatively efficient right. way. They're struggling with it a yeah. little bit. Yeah. So let me just say, as I know we're getting to the end here, I mean, climate and energy is part of what I wrote about, but what I wanted also to write about was energy and geopolitics because they're there are issues here and now. We were talking about China. We talked, uh, Rich brought up Russia. I mean, all around the world, energy is very entwined with some of the most important geopolitical issues we face. And I was struck that on Amazon in the UK, my book's a bestseller in geopolitics, not in energy. Yeah. Uh, which I, I think I, is- I would say, I did want to make that point, Dan. I just, so it's interesting if you, if you, you know, kind of look at the conventional wisdom, it is that- the United States and China, you know, we're going to compete on technology, but we're going to find a couple of areas that we can work together. And one of those areas that is often mentioned is on climate without people really understanding that at the core of the climate agenda really is technology. So, Kurt, that gets to a question I have to ask you before we go. So, I, it, you know, you're, you're getting it mixed up here, Dan. It's I know, amazing. I know, but I just, I think it's important. So, in the book, I came up with this idea of the WTO consensus as a term I use to describe the sense that China and the US integrated in a global economy, good for everybody. That consensus is broken down. So, uh, what's the name of the news consensus or what's the new, I mean, across political spectrum in the U S look, the watchword Dan is going to be competition. 
and people are going to try to talk about stable competition or strategic competition or durable competition. There's going to be a lot of competition for what is the adjective in front of that. But I will simply say, I don't want to be pessimistic here, but I'll try to play the role that you play. We're, we're heading into a period in which U.S.-China relations are likely to be unstable. Um, it's going to be very difficult to find an equilibrium. We have no experience of having a relationship that has some degrees of interdependence and some degrees of hostility. Yeah, that's true. Because, you know, you look at the Cold I mean, I went so far. My first book was on the origins of the Soviet-American Cold War. You know, but the Soviet Union was not a main factor in the world economy. The Soviet Union was not in people's 401k and retirement yeah. funds. Yeah. I think that's going to be hard. And I don't think, I I will say, and I'll just conclude with this, Dan. So you've very effectively turned the tables on us, Dan. I will say this. I, you know, there is a consensus that has emerged rapidly between Democrats and Republicans of the need to reconfigure our relationship with China. I accept that. But what's interesting is how little debate has gone into that. Okay. So I'm going to ask you one last question, then, then I'm done asking you questions. How does it look to you? How do the China? How do you think the Chinese see the situation? Yeah. Is it a mirror I, image? No, I think so. I I would prefer this not to be the case, but I think that our Chinese friends see this as uh, in terms of power, and and they've looked at us for thirty or forty years on a number of occasions. They've got ahead of themselves and sort of predicted and acted in ways in which they believe the United States was in the midst of a hurtling decline. And I think they now are looking at the United States and thinking this is our moment to assert ourselves on the global stage. Contrary to popular belief that China is a deeply, you know, strategic and patient country, they are not. They're incredibly impatient. They often jump the gun. They often overstep. The hope is that with the right strategic choices in Washington, as you indicate, Dan, in your book, in technology, in energy, in education, that we can sustain our leadership in ways that in many respects reaffirms the decisions that our friends have made. Right right now, all of that is in play. Lots of questions about whether the United States is going to continue uh, to play its historic role. I got it. So Dan. Uh, And Rich, you haven't talked about India. And actually, I know we're we're over time, but in the last 60 seconds, Dan, I I know you know a lot about India. You've written a lot. You've been there. I tell you know people a lot more. <laughs> that as I look forward over the next five to 10 years between the US and India, that the single biggest area of cooperation should be in energy between the US and India. That can be in uh, renewables, that can be in natural gas, that can be in civil nuclear, that can be in you know technology, diversification, storage, batteries, electric vehicles. But we saw a glimpse of what was possible when President Obama and Prime Minister Modi spent hours together trying to get to the final uh, stages of Paris climate, and they did. So do you share that? Do you, do you think, am, am I alone here in thinking that this really could be the single biggest pathway of our cooperation? Well, I think it's a very important dimension. Uh, you know, there are other things like just technology and, and the people. I mean, I'm so struck by, you know, just in terms of you know, technology in the United States. But I think that it's a very important dimension and, a, as you suggest, Rich, a very positive dimension in terms of, along with the Indo-Pacific and the other strategic issues, 
uh, to uh, really bolstering the relationship in a very productive way for both countries. Great. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been terrific. It really is good to see you. We really appreciate you spending time with us. I want to remind all our listeners that his book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Class of Nations, so there it is, Dan, was released on September 15th, and it is an excellent read, highly readable, interesting, must read to understand what's going on in global politics, strategy, and energy. Dan, thank you. Yeah, thank Dan, you. Dan, incredible, incredible book. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Dan, thanks again. And to all our listeners, stay safe and healthy. And Kurt and I will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.